Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin with Peter Hooper today. He's chief economist at Deutsche Bank, joins Tom in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. Peter, great to speak with you. As always, and let's start with the data on offer today, particularly when it comes to industrial uh, production. How important is this read going to be? Uh, yes, to you, but also to the uh, to Federal Reserve policymakers. Uh, David, it, 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 you know, industrial production is sort of a second line uh, yeah. indicator. It's it, it is important. Uh, certainly, it's been on the weaker side of GDP, uh, uh, sort of lagged effects of past appreciation of the dollar, uh, but we're expecting a uh, uh, moderate pickup today. Uh, let me ask you just to more generally here about the, the state of the U.S. economy, uh, again, in the context of what the Fed's going to be looking for when it meets here in, in a few days' uh, time. What, what are the deficits still? What, what, what might those policymakers be worried about at this point when they look at, uh, at the U.S. economy as a whole? Well, we've, we've been through a very weak first quarter. Uh, signs in uh, consumer rebound are, are encouraging, at least, in terms of some of the upward revisions we've had the past uh, retail sales numbers. Uh, so, so uh, consumer obviously is is the the, the most important element here, uh, but we're also looking to see are we are we beginning to see some positive payoff on on business uh, investment spending? It's, it's the numbers have been pretty good uh, of late. Uh, does that continue? Uh, is that getting a lift from uh, this? this, this uh, uh, Remarkable rise in animal spirits, which seems uh, to be sustained so far through all the uh, negative uh, news out of Washington, et cetera. But uh, I think those are the, 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 the two key areas. Uh, net exports have been a drag. Uh, again, lagged response to past mm. appreciation of the dollar. Um, but uh, overall, I think, I think the, the Fed is going to be uh, most interested in continued progress in the, in the labor market. Uh, on, on the activity side, uh, and that's held up very well, despite very weak first quarter, uh, payroll employment averaging 170,000 per month, uh, uh, well above the the underlying trend in labor supply, and the labor market continues to tighten. Are we seeing a, a narrowing of, if not a marriage of, the soft data and the hard data at this point? You mentioned the animal uh, spirits is the hard data catching up to the exuberance of the soft data uh, at this point. It's going in that direction. Yeah. I don't know that it's fully caught up yet, uh, but, but certainly uh, we do expect, uh, I mean, the consensus expectation is somewhere between 3 and 4% on, on the second quarter growth, uh, depending on who you talk to. Our, our numbers are maybe a little south of 3.5, but uh, uh, we're, we're certainly in the monthly data, we're, we're moving in that direction. Peter, let me ask you about Europe. We had a meeting yesterday between the new president of France and the chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel. Are we turning a page when it comes to the European economy as a result of that election in France? Are we, are we putting some of that political risk behind us? Are we seeing a movement in a new direction now that we have what I would say is a, a different, a new or different alliance here between France and Germany? Well, certainly the outcome in France was was better than uh, expected or, or feared, uh, should we say. I mean, yep. uh, and, and uh, Macron has, has uh, been saying all, all the right things, and um, meeting with uh, Merkel yesterday, certainly a, a, a plus. 
Um, uh, Macron does have uh, some major challenges ahead. I mean, he's got to get, get his parliamentary election going. He's, uh, will he have enough support uh, with his own party, a nascent party, begin to pick up uh, uh, enough support there? Uh, and then, then uh, obviously, uh, the, the, the menu ahead, uh, some significant labor market reforms, which are not going to be terribly politically popular in France. Uh, how long does his popularity last? Uh, how much progress can he, me can he make in a direction that France does need to, need to make uh, for the good of the European uh, economy yeah. overall? Peter Hooper with us in our New York studios. Dave, where are you, David? I don't even know where you are. <laughs> a, block, a block away from our bureau is the oh, okay. Bloomberg government You're offices. You're at the Gucci store, right? <laughs> Live Hot. from the Gucci Hot, store. Yes. <laughs> Very good. David Gura, good morning in a beautiful uh, Washington. We should point out, thanks to John Tucker for catching this, with a news flow, we must uh, at least bring to you every tweet by yeah. the President of the United States. Quote, as President, I wanted to share with Russia, parentheses, at an openly scheduled White House meeting, close parentheses, which I have the absolute right to do, Facts pertaining dot, dot, dot. We I await think, the follow-up. We I await the next the dot, tweet. Dot, yeah. dot. So to be fair to our listeners worldwide, we'll wait for a little bit more, but we can stay to you. The president is tweeting today. With us, uh, Peter Hooper, as we talk about 3% growth and optimism, the president wants to make America great again, Peter Hooper, and he has delivered an optimistic message about economic growth. Did that help? Well, uh, he's not only giving a, a message where he uh, hoped, intended to get some tax reform done uh, and, and a number of other uh, legislative issues, which, which have bogged down in uh, what appears to be uh, the usual gridlock. We, uh, those optimists at the turn of the year felt that uh, at least uh, the Republican Party would, would, would hold it together and be able to get some things done. Um, uh, the strength of the Freedom Caucus was not fully anticipated. Uh, what the administration does seem to have achieved that uh, with some positive payoff to the economy potentially is uh, uh, the perception of a more business-friendly uh, regulatory environment. This, this may have uh, cost uh, down the road, but for the time being, near term, uh, this has been a factor, we think, that has lifted animal spirits and is likely to give business spending somewhat of a lift uh, in the second half of the year. Um, of course, that, that all depends on well, how things continue to go in Washington. Let me, well, in Washington, let's go to where David Gurry is. And, uh, Dr. Hooper, you can help us out. The future of smart cities, spotlight on infrastructure. I, I mean, John Tucker just going down 59th Street this morning as they're repaving it is enough to kill a tractor trailer. Oh, they're doing a lot of repaving in Manhattan, at least. I don't yeah, know the, they're, you know, they're doing some. There's infrastructure I'll give them that. spending. Where are we? What, why is it so hard, Peter Hooper? Help me with my to panel, do infrastructure? yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the spending side is something that uh, the Republican Party has not been uh, uh, terribly uh, supportive of. Um, tax cuts are fine, uh, but the conservatives on, in, in, in uh, the Republican side uh, uh, blanch at the thought of any kind of major infrastructure spending plan. So that aspect of the Trump agenda is going to, is going to face some tough sledding uh, unless we attempt to go to, uh, go to the middle. Uh, and work with the Democrats. Uh, I don't. I don't see that mm -hmm. happening right away. Is there just when you look at this sort of universally? We we were focusing on what was happening in, in Beijing over the weekend. We'll talk to Diana Trelev about that in just in just a little bit. But the president of China trying to get 
uh, private industry to invest in, in infrastructure projects. Ostensibly, that would, would be what was going to happen here if we get uh, what the president's described, a public-private partnership. Are you satisfied there's the appetite for that, that investors are, are standing by ready, willing, and able to, to give money to these projects? I don't have a good beat on uh, yeah. exactly how strong the support is for that. I think there certainly is some. Uh, certainly the, the, the lift in uh, business sentiment um, is, has been uh, in, in indicative of some support there. Right. Um, but uh, I, I think, you know, how much, how much is the federal government going to add into this to, to get it going, to stimulate it? Um, there are some questions there. Peter Hooper, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it, particularly your time given the news mm -hmm. flow uh, that we've seen uh, today. David Gurr in Washington with the Bloomberg Smart Cities event. I'm Tom Keene in uh, New York. Here's the entire two tweets from the president. As president, I wanted to share with Russia, parentheses, at an openly scheduled White House meeting, close parentheses, which I have the absolute right to do, facts pertaining to terrorism and airline flight safety, humanitarian reasons, plus I want Russia to greatly step up their fight against ISIS and terrorism. One of our joys is to speak to James Stavitas, the former uh, Supreme NATO commander, Admiral U.S. Navy at the Fletcher School at Tufts. Admiral Stavitas, the parentheses at an openly scheduled White House meeting, I believe the uh, international relations phrase used at Fletcher is hogwash. Um, help me here with where we are, distill for us away from the hysteria Area, the import of this to our military and to our intelligence services. Tom, this is deeply disturbing. And, and let's start with the tactical, which is, uh, as you and David know, intelligence is kind of a mosaic, and people hold different bits of color, and then they get a new data bit, and it allows them to fill in a picture. That's what was provided to the Russians, and we are not on the same side as the Russians either geopolitically in the world or tactically in Syria. So big tactical failure. Secondly, this really puts our allies in a position of wondering whether or not to share information with us. And that can be devastating because counterterrorism is the ultimate team sport. And lastly, who's the winner here? It's Russia. More confusion, more turmoil in Washington, less confidence in our nation. So uh, it's hard to think of anything the president could have done which would roil the international system in a more dramatic and difficult way than this. How about the position that H.R. Uh, McMaster is in? We, we were watching yesterday uh, outside the White House as reporters waited for him to come out and deliver a statement. He uh, did. It was short, and what he said was, I was in the room. We learned a few other people who were in the room as well. I was in the room, and this didn't happen today. Judging by the tweets that Tom just read, it sounds like he's been contradicted by his boss. Indeed he has. And I think the only defense I can offer for General McMaster, who is a dear friend of mine and a wonderful, <clears throat> wonderful individual, yeah. is simply that he was denying that specific sources and methods were revealed. Yeah. Um, what is very clear at this point is that highly classified information was given to the Russians. Yeah. I, I can't imagine him trying to deny and that. <clears throat> Lastly, on H.R. McMaster... Here's a guy who wrote the book yeah. uh, about speaking truth to power. 
And it's all about right. uh, his ability to, to take that to the president and, and I, shut this kind of behavior down. I'd point out the, the notes this morning, folks, such as Mike Allen at Axios, with real sourcing to the White House, talk about lives at risk. That's how serious uh, this is. Admiral, um, unfortunately, I'm reading Eric Larrabee's commander-in-chief about FDR. I'm, I'm blaming you uh, for this, sir. <laughs> and what I'd like to know is where is Stimson, where is Hap Arnold to straighten out the president? Where are the adults, such as General Mattis, when do they march into the Oval Office and say what Senator Corker wants, this must stop? Hopefully today. And I think that uh, I've been on with you and David many times, and I've Mm. said one of the things that does give me some hope about this administration is the presence of General Mattis, Rex Tillerson, a global Fortune 500 CEO, and H.R. McMaster. But Boy, it's a it's pretty cloudy morning out there in terms of their behavior. And I think they're going to have to step up to the plate fairly soon on this. Let me play devil's advocate a little bit here. Uh, When you when you join the military, when you're first exposed to this kind of information, what are you taught about how to keep track of all of it? In other words, we've got a president here with no government experience learning on the job by necessity. I think that's a fair thing to say. How hard is it to keep track of all of this? How do you keep track of what's confidential, top secret, all these classifications? You know, I think, David, we start in kindergarten uh, learning how to keep a secret, and we go through uh, elementary school and junior high school and high school, and we make mistakes along the way. We reveal things. Most people, by the time they're kind of in college maybe, know that when there's something really important at stake, you keep a secret. The training in the military is no more complicated than that. You're told that these are secrets which (laughs) must be protected for the good of the nation. Yeah. I I don't think there's anything mysterious or magical about that. And I'm uh, frankly, what is particularly worrisome is that he didn't reveal the information uh, to uh, a friendly power or even a neutral power. This is to Russia, with whom we have uh, significant political and military disagreements. Admiral, we value your perspective. Thanks so much. James Trevitas is with uh, Fletcher School. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com lens. 
now on trade, but really on the events in Washington, as our David Gurr is at our Smart City Conference uh, with Bloomberg Government. Uh, Ted Alton is in our Washington 99.1 FM studios as well. Uh, he is with the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Ted, we've talked about this through the morning, but let's recapitulate with the mm. tweets that we see uh, from the president. How does this fold into trade? How does the president's dialogue with other nations change question. because of yeah. these, these, these issues? Well, I, I mean, I think there's just there are going to be growing underlying questions about the reliability and, and trustworthiness of the United States uh, under this president. And, and that's obviously matters a lot for trade negotiations as well. Other countries need to know that the United States is going to behave in a consistent fashion, that it's going to live by the word of its commitments. And so I, I just think this is going to cause a lot of questions internationally that will spill over into other realms outside of intelligence sharing. Ted, let me ask you about what changes now that we have a U.S. trade representative. We'll get back to the sort of general scene here in Washington in just a sec, but uh, it's been a long time of waiting here for this administration to get Robert Lighthizer uh, confirmed. All the while, we've seen the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, really uh, acting at the vanguard of shaping this administration's trade uh, policy. What do we know about Mr. Lighthizer and the direction he might take trade policy in? Yeah, I mean, I think potentially a lot changes. Bob Lighthizer is a very experienced trade policy professional. He was the deputy U.S. trade representative in the Reagan administration, uh, led a lot of the trade battles that were fought with Japan back in the, in the 1980s. And he's got very strong opinions. I know, you know, a lot of, of folks are kind of sanguine now. Uh, the United States didn't name China a currency manipulator. President Trump didn't pull us out of NAFTA. But, you know, listen to what Bob Lighthizer said uh, at the White House yesterday on his swearing in, he, he said he's going to help President Trump, quote, permanently reverse the dangerous trajectory of American trade policy. So he really sees himself as uh, taking the United States in a very, very different direction on trade. And there's no question he's got the, uh, the ability and the smarts to do that. How much of a continuum is there? You go back to Japan and the trade policy talks involving that country. Uh, how applicable are the lessons learned from that to what we're seeing today? Well, we're in a very different world, and, and, and it's a world that, that Bob Lighthizer doesn't like a lot. I mean, back when the United States and Japan were in their trade battles, the United States was able to threaten to restrict Japanese access to the U.S. market unless Japan opened up to the United right. States. You know, we, we slammed them over semiconductors and threatened over autos. Under the rules of the World Trade Organization, now you can't really do that. And one of Lighthizer's goals, he's articulated over many years, is to try to bring back some of that old flexibility. I think Wilbur Ross wants to go down the same road. Oh, that, that was my next question. Are we seeing a partition now of Ross-Navarro theory? I mean, they've been joined at the hip since the day of the inauguration. Is, it, is there finally a distinction between a Secretary of Commerce and Dr. Navarro? Well, I mean, I think, I think you know, Bob Lighthizer kind of completes a triumvirate there. I, I, I think they all share a similar view of the world. The difference is that Lighthizer really knows how to pull the levers. I mean, Wilbur Ross got, had a lot of experience in business, knows a lot about the steel industry, but is not a real expert on trade policy yeah. and the different enforcement mechanisms. Bob Lighthizer is. He knows how to get things done. Is he a zero-sum neo-mercantile guy, or is he, like, completely opposite of the of the screed? I mean, I don't think he's entirely zero-sum, but he's much more on the zero-sum side than, than I, you know, I think what, what's been called the globalist wing of the administration, you know, uh, Gary Cohn and Steve Mnuchin. I, I, I think uh, 
Lighthizer does see right. the United States as in a real trade competition with uh, with China in particular, right. but other countries as well. Let's come back. Ted Alden with us, the Council on Foreign Relations. He has a beautiful book out uh, that we'll talk about in our next section on trade. It is dense. It is complete. It will shatter the illusions, the myths that we have about uh, trade failure to adjust. Let's get wonky with Ted Walden, Council on Foreign um, Relations, as we talk about uh, trade. Ted, help me here with imports. Do they save us a lot of money? Is a general amateur statement when you sift through the partial differentials of trade, do we save a lot of money this day in imports? Oh, I think there's no question. That's where most of the gains from trade are to to ordinary Americans. The example I use often is is clothing. You go back to the early 1970s when when we didn't trade a lot, and the average American household spent about seven percent of his family budget on clothing. Today it's less than three percent. You know, anybody who goes to the mall knows that there are bargains galore, and a lot of that is is the result of inexpensive imports. And there are a lot of other products for which that's true. So yeah, no question, saves Americans a lot of money. How and, and how soon are we going to see the the, uh, the the fallout from these countervailing duties that have applied to to uh, softwood from Canada? I know that there's concern in the housing uh, sector. Is that going to have a big effect on housing here in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to have a, a small but but significant effect. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the duties are being collected all, already. Whether they will be uh, held or not depends on 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 later decisions coming from the International Trade Commission and and other bodies. But but you know, in the past when the United States has put duties on softwood lumber uh, imports from Canada. The price has gone up somewhat now. Now it's offset by the fact that the Canadian dollar is so weak, and so some of the the, the cost increase will will be lessened by the, the the weakness of the Canadian dollar. But it will have some impact in the housing market, no question. What do you see the the role of the WTO being uh, going forward here? You, you see these sort of piecemeal efforts by this administration when it comes to softwood, or comes to dairy, comes to other. Uh, products and it seems like they're flouting the the role of the WTO. The the years that went into crafting some of these uh, tariff agreements. What's the role of the WTO going to be under the Trump administration? No, well, I mean it's still going to be there. The Canadians yeah. could could well uh, uh, appeal the American uh, action on software to the WTO. They have in the past. I think the problem with the WTO is is twofold. One, it's based on a set of rules that now are in many respects twenty years out of date. Uh, the basic. Uh, rules of the World Trade Organization were set in the mid-1990s, and it's been impossible to update those rules through new negotiations. So I think they become less and less relevant over time. The other problem is just the United States under the Trump administration has sent a lot of signals that it won't be bound by WTO decisions. We'll have to see how that plays out. But this is the first administration to threaten not to comply with WTO rulings. And now, folks, it's time for the Tuesday dumb question of the day. (laughs) No such thing as a dumb question, Tom. We do that with Ted Alden. (laughs) Ted, are we basically doing TPP without doing TPP? Mm -hmm. Is that what this trade is going to be? Well, I mean, the NAFTA renegotiation, I think, is going to be based largely on what was done in yeah. uh, in the TPP. And I think there's a great piece by Bob Davis in the Wall Street Journal this morning suggesting that it's not impossible that the administration will take another look at the TPP. It's a, it's going to be the template for the talks with Mexico and Canada. And it it would have given the United States a lot of leverage over China. So I'm, I'm, I, I can't say I'm hopeful, but, but I still think that there may be some room for this administration to take another look at what it did in pulling out of the TPP. I think that's why the rest of the countries are kind of keeping the corpse warm just in case uh, the U.S. changes its mind. Well, set the table for us. So we're going to talk to Diana Choileva here in just a, in a couple of minutes. But uh, let's look at the, the broader trade landscape. What did we learn about it 
uh, from the forum convened in Beijing over the weekend. Uh, what does that say to you about global trade, the direction of global trade? Well, I guess, you know, what I'm encouraged about listening to the Chinese is, well, obviously they have regional priorities that kind of top their agenda on trade. I think the Chinese are aware that they have been big beneficiaries of the system of global trade rules under the, the WTO. They are talking more and more. We'll see whether the actions follow, but talking more and more about playing a responsible role in trying to safeguard and build on those rules. So, so I was encouraged by what I heard coming out of the, out of the meetings over the weekend. How, uh, how efficacious would, would a TPP be without the, the U.S.? How strong an agreement would it be? I, I, I think it's, it's fairly irrelevant. I think, you know, on the rules front, unless the U.S. is involved, it, it, it doesn't have uh, a lot of, um, you know, it doesn't set a template for the world going forward. And I think on, you know, on the simple market access side, you yeah. know, what tariffs get removed, without the U.S., they're going to have to renegotiate the whole deal because it was based on having the U.S. involved. So, so I think it's pretty empty without the United States. Are we mercantile? Are we heading towards mercantile? Oh, I think, there, I think there's no question. I think this administration is more deliberately mercantilist than, than, than we've ever, you know, not ever, but seen in maybe 75 years yeah, in, I mean, in the United the States. And, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm not entirely opposed to that. I think sometimes, and I certainly write about this in my book, the U.S. got taken advantage of because the, the big Asian yeah. trading powers were very mercantilist and we were not. I think some rebalancing was overdue, but the, the question is how far the administration is going to take it. Do we have more clarity on that from all of these uh, these piecemeal efforts that I mentioned a few minutes ago? Is it, is it coming together? Uh, uh, a sort slowly. of trade, a trade plan, trade philosophy? I mean, slowly. There are a bunch of these discrete moves, you know, the yeah. investigation into whether steel and aluminum imports are threatening U.S. national security. That could result in broad tariffs on those products. The investigation into our trading relationships with countries that run a big surplus with the U.S., China and Germany and Mexico, Japan, Korea, among others. There's going to be some outcome to that. So there are a yeah. lot of balls that are rolling. We don't exactly know yet where they're going to land. Ted Alden, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it this morning with the Council on Foreign Relations. Good morning, everyone. Scarlett Fu and Tom Keen. Bloomberg Surveillance, Mr. Gurr at a Smart Cities event for Bloomberg Government in Washington. He's paneling with mayors. So she picked the short straw. Scarlett Fu darkens. It's an emotional homecoming for us. Is it we, is, um, it's been very emotional, I have to say. Yeah, I'm still kind of, you know, verklempt. We're, you know, trying to get through it as we can. Scarlett Fu in this important hour. Our Kevin Cirilli in conversation with the Senate uh, Majority uh, Leader Addison Mitchell McConnell Jr., age 75, uh, born in Alabama, but he is Kentucky, Kentucky, uh, Kentucky, and he is a pragmatist. He's going to have to be one after what we've seen the last few weeks in Washington and certainly in the last 24 hours. Really looking forward to Kevin Cirilli's uh, discussion with the Senate uh, Majority Leader. It has been an extraordinary 24, 48, 72 hours. Basically, I can't imagine what will get us uh, to Wednesday. One of our people with great responsibility to report facts and avoid hysteria has taken the Kool-Aid by our Mike Dorning and, and joins us now. Alex Wayne is our White House uh, reporter. And Alex, uh, all of the reports we get of a level of yelling and screaming last night at the White House. Is there yelling and screaming this morning? 
this morning, but uh, there's a little bit of drama going on on Twitter, thanks to the president. Uh, he apparently responded to the reports that he shared classified information with Russians in a, in a meeting last week by tweeting that he had the absolute right to share, quote, facts with them uh, on airline safety. I mean, I mean, within this, and Marty Schenker was on earlier with us with the level of hysteria and this and that and what, yeah. is you in the daily grind, do you agree with the uproar over this or should we be more measured? Um, I, I don't think people are wrong to be a little bit alarmed. I mean, this, this president is doing abnormal things. Um, he fired the FBI director. That didn't even happen under Nixon, as the Nixon Library conveniently pointed out to us the day it happened. Uh, he is he he apparently, if these reports are accurate, I have no reason to think they aren't. He apparently shared classified information with an American adversary, information that was provided mm -hmm. by a U.S. ally. That's that's not normal behavior for the president, and I and I think Americans are are right to uh, look at this with a kind of a jaundiced eye. Uh, Alex Wayne, let me bring in my colleague Scarlett Fu as we await the conversation of Kevin Cerulli with the Senate Majority Leader. Scarlett? Well, the National Security Advisor uh, McMaster also came out and said that the story that came out as reported is false. Mm. Um, but we haven't heard much more from the rest of Washington. What is likely to be the response? I mean, Kevin will surely be asking uh, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell about this as well. How are they likely to position themselves? There's a whole lot of alarm uh, among congressional Republicans. Uh, I, the, the, the best quote, or the most interesting quote I saw yesterday was from uh, Bob Corker, the, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee chairman, who said this White House needs to get a grip. I mean, this is this is a guy who is pretty much been a Trump ally. He was never a never-Trumper or anything like that. He was, he and I believe he endorsed the president at some point last year um, during the campaign. He says that the White House is out of control and needs to, needs to get things locked down. Yeah, you don't hear that very often. No. Does, do voices like Bob Corker have an effect on the Trump administration? Have you seen that kind of uh, commentary from, from outside affect the way that the White House operates? No. I mean, the, the president is a wild card. He's got a uh, direct line to the American people with his Twitter account. Uh, White House aides have tried and apparently failed to persuade him to give that up. Um, and so he's he's out there this morning on Twitter. Yeah. Um, essentially, I mean, a lot of people think he's admitting that the, the story is correct. I wouldn't go that far. Right. I don't think he's he's admitted that he's shared classified information with the Russians, but he's he, he didn't exactly deny the story on Twitter this morning. He's yeah. apparently claiming a right to, to do what the, the things the story alleges he did. Alex Wayne, thank you so much for the briefing and thank you sure. for the acuity of your work at the White House. Some of us get to talk about it, folks. I don't make light about it. We we make jokes and we have conversation. Alex Wayne is in the trenches trying to get the facts straight. And come up with the, the next day yeah, story. Yeah. It is a name from my past, Senator John Sherman Cooper. He had an intern 53 years ago. His name was Young McConnell. And Mitch McConnell, of course, pieced together an internship under the great John Sherman Cooper uh, in the 60s towards, in 1984, what is that, 33 years ago, being elected to the Senate by all of 5,200 uh, votes. That would be 0.4%. He's built on that over 30 years. I believe that makes him five, maybe a six-term uh, senator uh, who's counting into being the Senate majority leader. And, and needless to say, Scarlett, Mr. McConnell 
is buffeted by a fractious House. Mm. Senators trying to figure out what to do in their staggered elections two years apart uh, over a sequence of six years. And also with an original presidency. This is going to be something. I like that. Original presidency, Tom. That's a really good way of putting it. Uh, Certainly, Mitch McConnell has his work cut out for him. I mean, you can Mm -hmm. look at health care, for instance. Um, The House Republicans passed the bill. And we know that the Senate has made clear that they're not even going to start looking at it until the CBO scores it. And by many reports, they plan to start from scratch. They plan to start from the very beginning and not not really take into account what the House has passed. Yeah, the dynamics of this are interesting, and certainly we've heard that day-to-day by Kevin Cirilli. Mr. Cirilli, uh, out on the trail with Mr. Trump, uh, now in conversation with the Senate Majority Leader uh, from uh, Kentucky. Here is Kevin Cirilli. I want to get your take first and foremost on the reports last night in the Washington Post. So your colleague, Senator Bob Corker, a Republican from Tennessee, said that this White House is in a quote-unquote downward spiral. What do you make of all this? Well, I read the Washington Post story and I read uh, General McMaster's uh, response, uh, which tends to refute uh, the story, (laughs) rebut the story. Um, I think we could do with a little less drama from the White House uh, on a lot of things so that we can focus on our agenda, which is the deregulations, tax reform, uh, repealing and replacing Obamacare. I want to talk about that. But first and foremost, a lot of attention right now on who the president will select to nominate to replace now former FBI director James Comey. Have you spoken with the president about this and who would you recommend? Yeah, actually, I have spoken with the president about it. I recommended Merrick Garland. Might surprise some people. Yeah, it may surprise people, but he has a deep background in criminal law. He was the prosecutor in the Oklahoma City bombing case. And I think it would make it clear that President Trump will continue the tradition at the FBI of having an apolitical professional. Do you think he needs some Democrat, some Democratic support on whomever he picks in order to, to legitimize the, the nominee? Well, it would be good yeah. to have Democratic support. And I think if he picks um, someone with a deep background in, in law enforcement who has no history of political involvement, a genuine expert, and the reason I mentioned Garland, he's an example of that, um, it will serve him well, serve the country well, and lead to, I think, a more uh, bipartisan approach. Before we get to policy, I do just want to mention this tweet last week, President Trump tweeting about the quote unquote, James Comey better hope that there are no tapes of our conversation before he starts leaking to the press, end quote. You've expressed confidence in the Republican controlled committee investigating this. But should that committee have access to those tapes if they do exist? Well, Senator Burr and Senator Warner are handling the Intelligence Committee investigation. They'll decide what they need. Uh, In the meantime, for the rest of us who are not directly involved in that, I think we need to concentrate on what comes next. We need to have a great uh, choice for FBI director. I anticipate the president will do that and move on. How has all of the drama that you described influenced your ability to get across health care reform, for example? What is the timeline on that? What is the update of that? So many Republicans across the country, Mr. Leader, elected a Republican-controlled Congress to fix health care. Yeah, well, we're in in intense meetings in the Senate. The bill finally passed the House. It wasn't easy in the House, and it won't be any easier in the Senate. Um, Three days a week, we we are in intense discussions with virtually all of the 52 members of the Senate. And my goal is to get to at least 50 votes to repeal and replace Obamacare, and those discussions are underway. Do you have a timeline on that? Well, we, we can't take forever. 
the private uh, health insurance market is collapsing. Uh, insurers are pulling out of markets. I don't think we have forever uh, to address this, but I'm not going to put a strict timeline on it. So many people, there's really nothing more personal than health insurance. Right. Can you guarantee that whatever reform package is passed, that no one will lose coverage? Well, what we know is what we have now is a disaster. It isn't working. The exchanges are collapsing. The status quo is unacceptable. Uh, we need to do better than the status quo. Another big issue, of course, is tax reform. You have said that this has to be revenue neutral. Yeah. The, the president is proposing a massive tax cut. Are, it's seemingly there, this, there could be some tension on visions. What, is there tension on the visions, and what is the timeline? Are you confident we could have comprehensive tax reform by the end of the year? Well, it will have to be revenue neutral. We have a $21 trillion debt. A lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we added an enormous amount of debt during the Obama years. So we'll have to be revenue neutral. I don't want to put a strict timeline on it. Uh, the last time tax reform was done, it took several years. <laughs> but we certainly want to try to complete it, this Congress, and make America more competitive. That's what it's about. We didn't have one year of 3% growth, not one year of 3% growth during all of Obama. One of the most controversial issues of tax reform, of course, has been the border adjustment tax. Mm -hmm. I've spoken with a lot of senators in the Senate who seem are against it. What are the chances of a border tax being involved in all this? Well, it it's probably wouldn't pass the Senate. But the way we're trying to go forward is the, the Secretary of the Treasury, the Speaker, and myself are trying to reach an agreement on a proposal that we can all agree to start with. And, of course, it will start in the House. Uh, we haven't reached that agreement yet, but we will at some point. Border adjustability is a pretty controversial thing in the Senate, um, but we'll see what's in the final thing we agree to. Have you spoken with the president since last night about the, the news of the day? About uh, I the speak with him frequently. Um, and just a final question, because we, we hear a lot about this on Blue Murder Course, is the need for regulatory reform, particularly on Dodd-Frank. What are the chances of that? What, what is the size of that? Well, we're doing a lot of regulatory reform. We've done 14 uh, repealers of Obama-era regulations already this year under the Congressional Review Act. I'd love to revisit Dodd-Frank. My community bankers have taken a hit. Uh, so far, the Democrats on the uh, Senate Banking Committee, and there are enough Democrats to keep us from reforming Dodd-Frank, uh, don't seem to want to change it, even though all their community bankers are complaining about it. I would love to do it. It would require some Democratic involvement in order to achieve a statutory change in the Senate. And next week, the president is unveiling his budget proposal. And, of course, there's a lot looming in September, uh, potentially even a government shutdown. Mm -hmm. What are you going to be looking for in the president's budget? Well, we generally, no matter who the president is, generally don't pay a whole lot of attention <laughs> to the president's budget, but we share some of his priorities. I think plussing up defense is something almost all Republicans think is important. Uh, breaking out of the dollar for dollar, every, the, when the Democrats ran everything for, for a dollar of defense spending increase, you had to have a dollar of domestic. We've broken out of that already. Um, most of the president's priorities uh, I share, some of them I don't, and we'll, we'll work our way through this, and it'll have to be a bipartisan negotiation. The Democrats will not be irrelevant. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.